3-2, Simeon at second, picks it up, throws to first in time. That will finish the ball game. The Blue Jays dealt with Jonah Heim and his grand slam that opened it up in the seventh inning didn't have the answer to keep pace with a Rangers offense that looked like they did for the large majority in the first half of this season, swinging the bat, doing it loudly, and scoring a bunch of runs. Rangers come to Toronto and pick up a series opening win, 10-4. Bay Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. That was, of course, Ben Wagner. I thought these teams were supposed to be ships passing in the night. Blue Jays trending upwards. Rangers trending downwards. Blue Jays actually got a bunch of hits with runners in scoring position yesterday. Same number as the Rangers, except it did not work out at all for the Blue Jays, dropping game one of this four-game set. Not ideal. Not a great way to start this series. Also, bizarrely... Uh, low-attended game, lowest home crowd of the season for the Blue Jays, which I guess had something to do with it being a Monday in September. But, yeah, the most important game of the season and kind of a weird atmosphere and and over in the sixth inning. Very, very strange. Uh, trying to reverse their fortunes tonight, though. Hunjin Ryu on the mound against Max Scherzer. Let's talk to Joe Siddle, Blue Jays central analyst. How's it going, Joe? I'm good, Ben. How you doing? I'm doing all right. So these games are are important. Uh, it's a fun time of year to to be a baseball fan. Uh, well, it's more fun when your team is winning. Uh, so the Blue Jays, I, I guess Blue Jays fans weren't having a ton of fun yesterday. I will say, I, I, and Chris Bassett's been so good for the majority of this season, did seem like he was dancing through the raindrops through five innings there that I, I would have had him on a shorter leash. I was a little surprised that he wasn't lifted earlier than he was. What, what did you think of the bullpen deployment yesterday? Uh, it's, he's right at that mark, right? Like, uh, you've got a couple guys on. I thought two of the hits were softly hit. It wasn't like he was giving up lasers all around the field, and oftentimes you use your eyes. And he was laboring. It was a funny night, right, with the Bach call and the wild pitch. It was yeah. it was a weird, weird night for Chris Bassett, uh, for how good he has been, and as I said last night, you can't ask your starting pitcher to go eight innings every night. You can't ask your bullpen to be perfect every night. Uh, this is not a Chris Bassett question for me. Uh, you had mentioned it just there in the open. The game was over in the sixth inning. Guess what the sixth inning score was? After six innings, it was five to three Texas. Right. Well, I got an idea for the Toronto Blue Jays lineup. How about scoring some more runs and helping this pitching staff out? So to me, that's more of the story than anything. Yeah. Uh, tough to come back from 10 runs, but as you mentioned, yeah, the bullpen's been, <laughs> been, been so, so good, uh, this season. No, it's a, it's a great point that the, the offense has been the problem by and large this season. And I guess you can point to the offense again yesterday, Louis Rivera with, I guess, a, a curious send home. I, you know, analytics is, has taken over the game and I think, um, it's, it's benefited teams, at least as far as, you know, runs scored, runs prevented and wins and losses, they would point to the advanced numbers they have. I wonder if there's an analytical approach to, to third base coaching though, Joe, like it does still feel like we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants there when it comes to that. Like I, it, it, yeah. you, you would know better than I, but like, is there a, a, a hard and fast rule as far as when to send a guy? Like, obviously they're aware of the arm strengths of all the outfielders, but like that one in the moment really looked like a, a very close end, especially with, with none out. Like what is the process behind a third base coach making a decision like that? Well, there should never be a hard and fast rule because there are so many variables. You've got the runner's speed, which was great. It's Kiermaier. You've got the outfielder's arm. You've got the outfielder's depth. It's when is the outfielder catch, receiving the baseball, and in, where is the runner in relation to that? Oftentimes, as a general marker, again, depending on the depth 
uh, based on how hard the ball was hit. If the outfitter is fielding the ball at medium depth, say in this case left field, and the runner's not at third base yet, you're probably gambling if he's got any kind of arm. So with Kevin Kiermeyer, is it time to gamble? Sure, but I'll take first and third, nobody out with Bo and Vladdy coming up. I just think where you are in the lineup, that's not to me where I would gamble. But uh, again, lots of things at play, and you could, you could argue he was safe, but I, I wouldn't want it to be that close at home. And the third factor, it's another one of the variables you have to consider, did the runner get a great jump? And remember, it was kind of a line drive over the short pass to shortstop, so Kevin had to freeze just for a split second. Yeah. And sometimes I've always said like that, that, that break you get at second base, or if you have to freeze now, those milliseconds can be the milliseconds that determine safer out at home plate. And I think it determined that he was out because of that. It's just that all of those variables. So I just listed a lot of things. Now put yourself in the shoes of a third base coach. You have to account for all of those things. For me in that moment, it's not a send only because of where you're at in the lineup. And I know Bo's coming off injury and Vladdy's not swinging it, but I still take my chances with those guys. If you can't take your chances with those guys, who are you going to take your chances with? No. And it, it is a thankless job being a third base coach, right? Because we're only ever talking about Louis Rivera when it's a bad send. Like <laughs> I'm not, I'm not spending a segment of a radio program talking Talking about all the good sends that Louis Rivera has this season, which I'm sure there's more than a few. Um, and that was only one of the areas the Blue Jays just failed offensively. But Kevin Kiermeyer, man, I, I got to say, Joe, I was a little dubious of, of the signing considering the age. Uh, he's 33. He's going to be 34 uh, at the beginning of, of next season. But coming off the hip injury as well and his history of offense, which is like kind of peaking as, an, as a league average offensive player, he's been... Real, like spectacular, honestly. Uh, if you if you include the the defense that he's played in center field, and then when he's been healthy, the offense he's provided out of the nine slot in this Blue Jays lineup. He's a pending free agent. Who knows what the the market is going to bear for his services? And again, he's going to be thirty four this upcoming season. Do you think the Blue Jays though would be well advised to to look at bringing him back? It'll be very interesting because, uh, you know, Father Time's undefeated. But at the same time, Kevin's done a great job. And I think when they, when they signed him, the first thing I thought, and really was my only thought, was defense. We've seen so much of Kevin Kiermaier over the years in the Rays uniform. And clearly the Blue Jays were making a statement improving their outfield defense. So when they did that, I was like, well, that's going to help a lot. That should help the pitching staff a lot. And wouldn't you know, here's our conversation. This team's kind of based on pitching and defense, isn't it? That outfield defense especially. So that was great. And I thought anything he does offensively will be a bonus. We've seen what he can do. Uh, there's some swing and miss, of course, over the years. Is he not necessarily an offensive weapon, but he's come up big several times. So it's, it's been a great signing. And um, I think when you're a team like the Blue Jays and where their financial picture is right now, you can sign a guy like that for one year and $9 million. You can pick up a Brandon Belt for one year and $9 million. I mean, those are things, if you go back a number of years, that's what the Dodgers and those teams do. Mm-hmm. So to to kind of feel like you're in that conversation, uh, it goes back to the old, there's no such thing as a bad one-year contract, right? And I think they've handled Kevin really well physically, giving him enough days off to hopefully be as strong as possible. And he admits it sometimes. He feels it. He's, he's, he's under it a little bit. And these guys aren't getting any younger. And when you're not just turning 30, but into your 30s, uh, you'll hear more and more baseball players talk about it. And it's a thing. And uh, But the way they've handled him, with the rest, I think has been perfect. And then we said, coming out of spring training, I was thinking if he could start 110, 115 games, that'd be wonderful and play great defense in center field. And really that's what he's done. Yeah, no, he's been really, really good. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, battling through 
you know, the wears and tears of, of playing a 162-game season, even if you don't play every game. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. attempts to play every single game of the 162, Joe, and it's obviously been a diminished offensive season for Vladdy. We've been over it, and, you know, I, I thought there was a moment there a couple of games ago where we were starting to come out of it. Maybe you know, the process looked better yesterday, not so great. Um, but I do wonder, because he, he, he is on the field, like, every day, uh, unless he's absolutely forced out of the lineup. And, of course, there was the wrist thing earlier this season. Do you, do you think it's possible that that he's, like, part of the, the diminished offense this season, maybe maybe we can include the, the wrist in there, but maybe he's just, you know, a little worn down physically from the season. Is that at all possible in your mind? Well, of course it's possible. I think that's possible for everybody, but that's the last place I would go. I would include it, but it's the last place I would go to describe the decrease in production from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Because I'm sure you've heard me lots, Ben. I, yeah. I'm a big fan of the mechanics of a swing. I love studying it. I like trying to learn more about it. And the more I've looked at his swing, it's just far different than the Vladimir Guerrero Jr. we saw a couple years ago. The swing's not the same. The swing mechanics are not the same. And a lot of people point to the exit velocities and launch angles and pull percentage and ground ball. All You can go on and on and on and on. Those numbers all tell a story. I get it. But when you're talking about plate discipline, and he's, a lot, he's, he's really been better not chasing lately, but that kind of stuff that's been up a bit this year. Well, to me, it, it's all a root of the base problem. It's where you start and the, the initial moves in the batter's box because when his moves were better a couple of years ago, you pick up the baseball better. You pick up spin better. You lay off pitches better. You choose to swing at better pitches. It all goes hand in hand. And uh, for whatever reason, we don't know now do I – do I agree? Absolutely, there could be something. I think everybody's feeling a sore knee or a sore wrist or sore something right now. But how long has it been going on? I don't know. But I just uh, I, I can't go there because it's just been so different mechanically for me. Yeah. No. It, it's it's that that I mean that makes a whole lot of sense if it is uh, something mechanically that is leading to uh, his inability to recognize balls and strikes and better control the strike zone. That that makes a whole lot of sense. The Blue Jays. Call up a, a couple of guys from the Bisons that have pretty good strike zone awareness. Obviously, Davis Snyder has been outrageous. Uh, Spencer Horowitz gets into the game yesterday after Brandon Belt goes down with the back issue again, and who knows how long a process that'll be for for Belt to get back. But like, would you be comfortable with with giving Spencer Horowitz a little bit of a, a run here, maybe playing the the Brandon Belt role? You know, some some first base, some DH if if he is going to miss some time with the back issue again. Absolutely. I, I think this is where we're at, right? And I, I think for Brandon to leave that game yesterday for me was very concerning because this isn't an illness, this is his back, right? And if it was a stomach bug, I'd say, okay, hopefully it'll be good in a couple of days. But when it's your back and you're an aging player and he'd already missed that much time as over a week, right? Uh, that can't be good. I can't imagine he's back in the next few days. So that's not good. And absolutely, I think Spencer Horowitz, during the season, when we saw what Horowitz was doing in AAA, and I know Dan would update it on some broadcasts at times, and it was great. And to me, though, his only spot on this team was if Brandon Belt wasn't here, mm. if he gets hurt, if he has to go to the IL. And uh, so here it is. I think he's the perfect replacement, whether he DHs a bit, plays a little bit of first base to give Vladdy a day off, maybe to DH, whatever the case may be. But absolutely, let's get a look at him. And these uh, some of these young players have done a nice job coming up. And I said it a couple weeks ago, wouldn't it, these be nice stories to be telling in the middle of October yeah. <laughs> about these young players and the contributions they made to get this team to where they are now, whether it's the division series or a championship series? 
whatever the case may be. Are they going to be enough? I, we'll see. But, I, you know, I, I've always used my line, your best players need to be your best players. So I'd look a little further up in the lineup. And for me, it's all about Springer and Bo and Vladdy. If they don't carry the weight, man, it's going to be tough for everybody else to carry enough of the load to get this team where they want to go. Well, George Springer looks a lot more like himself, though, recently, Joe. Like, if you Better. go back, yeah, like the past, like, 30 days, he's got a, a, a more than 900 OPS. Yeah. Had a couple of hits um, yesterday with runners in scoring position as well. Of course, the one didn't score, uh, Kevin Kiermeyer. But, like, does, does this look closer to the George Springer you expected to see? It's hard to say. I mean, you certainly hope so, but it's when you when you play all season and you see the production down, mm. yes, you can get excited over a short little spurt here, but if, for me, it's like, oh, okay, well, we know that he's a late-season, postseason player. Let's hope that this can carry over, and if he can be this guy for another five weeks, six, seven weeks, wouldn't that be great till the end of October? That would help an awful lot because you can see the difference when he's doing damage at the top of the lineup. You know, the couple of home runs on Saturday, it's just, it's all the difference in the world. And uh, I keep going back to it, the, this offensive mystery of this team this season, but his production is down. Vladdy's is down big time and Kirk's is down big time. And those were three of your top four hitters in your lineup last year. Mm-hmm. So going back to my statement about your best players got to be your best players. They haven't been, or maybe they have been, and that's unfortunate because numbers are down all around. But you need those guys, and the production's down at the top of the order. And for whatever reasons, I, I don't know, is it a home away thing? Is it harder to pick up the baseball at home? Are they not seeing it as well? Is it playing bigger than we thought? I think that's diving into probably too many layers, and it's probably too early to evaluate the Rogers Center after one season because they, they don't hit as well. Yeah. at home as they do on the road. But I, I think it's kind of been everywhere. I look Again, I look more at the swings and approaches than I do the ballparks, and they're just different. I mean, I think you'd agree with me that Alejandro's swing's different this year. He looks very different. And I'm not saying he's a 30-home run guy or anything, but he's a pretty productive offensive player, and it just hasn't been there. So you combine him along with uh, with Vladdy and Springer up top, there, that's, that's a big chunk of offense missing. No question. There are there are some freakish things, though, happening at Rogers Center. Blue Jays are 9 for 59 with the bases loaded at home this season. That's 153. <laughs> they have no home grand slams this season. Opponents have five uh, against the Blue Jays just this season. So that that's weird. That, that feels like an anomaly, despite the fact that it's definitely um, a, a down offensive season for the Blue Jays. All right, before I let you go. This this Alec Manoa thing is is starting to take on a life of its own, Joe. Yesterday felt like a tipping point that that maybe there were some uh, some discussion points that that uh, people wanted out there because multiple people had uh, around the same report that Alec Manoa wasn't too pleased about the second demotion uh, and it being performance related and decided he was going to take his ball and go home. I, I know Kevin Barker yesterday on Blair and Barker was. Yeah, he was pretty pointed in his comments as a guy that battled tooth and nail to to make the major leagues and and went down to AAA and and tried to get back and did get back. You were the same, man. Like, I, what, yeah. what 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 do you make of 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 a story like that? And and I don't know. It's so hard to know what the future holds for Alec Manoa. But what was your reaction to to seeing some of the reporting and and maybe some of the stuff that you 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 knew to be true as well? Well, it's very disappointing, first and foremost. Um, secondly, I, you know, I was never in those types of shoes because you're talking about a guy that was a Cy Young candidate last year, and he's had two really big years coming, bursting on the scene in the major leagues. It, it happened fast, and 
I'm sure all Blue Jays fans were pretty excited about this young man moving forward. Remember all the talk last year, extend him. Manoa should be signing a long-term contract, all these things. Well, I, I noticed it in spring training. He just didn't seem right, didn't look right, wasn't pitching the same way. And you give guys a chance in spring training to kind of get, get their feet wet and get going, but it was never really coming. And then when the season started and kept going, it just wasn't coming. And then even when he went down for that duration, he came back. I had the game up in the booth with Dan Schulman in Detroit when he came back. And, you know, the numbers were good. But I remember Dan asked me during the game or after the game, and I was like, well, the numbers are good, but I'm not seeing that sharp slider still. It's still backing up. It's still like this stuff just wasn't there still. So I, I just thought, yeah, it's, it's not right. And I don't know that it's going to be right until maybe 2024. And wouldn't you know it, here we are a few months later. And apparently he's not pitching again until next year. So it's it's very disappointing, especially if that those reports are true, that that's the answer, that he got sent down and basically said he's not going. And then we heard all about the injury stuff and him going undergoing medical tests. It all sounded fishy for me, man. I was on the road when it was going on and we were in John Schneider's office each day and the more reports we got, I just kind of seemed to be rolling my eyes more and more every day. Like this story is not adding up. There's a lot of nonsense going on and as it sounds, maybe it was, and uh, it's too bad. I mean, the, the best thing for Mano and the best thing for the Blue Jays is that he works his tail off this off season and comes into spring training, the best shape of his life. Like we hear from so many people every spring <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, and he's back to Alec Manoa, but uh, very disappointing to hear how this all went down because it shouldn't be such a mystery like this. If you're not good enough, you go down and work on your craft and get better. Yeah. And it, and it, it, I mean, this sounds harsh, but it doesn't matter if you've had the start to your career, like Alec Manoa did in those first two seasons. It's, it's a, what have you done for me lately? uh, Profession. This This team's trying to get to October baseball, right? They couldn't afford to throw them up there anymore. Nope. They absolutely could not. Joe, uh, appreciate the time. Enjoy the game tonight. All right, Ben. Have a good one. Take care. You too. There's Joe Siddle, Blue Jays Central Analyst. Yeah, I felt like yesterday was a tipping point in this dealio. I, I did mention that there were multiple people with reports, some better than others. We will talk to uh, Ben Nicholson-Smith after 4 o'clock about his reporting on the subject matter. But it did feel like mm, maybe a lot of information came from one direction, that being the Blue Jays, that... They wanted their side of the story to be out there. They wanted people to understand the scenario they believe to be true. Um, It makes a lot of sense. Alec Manoa was, without question, one of the best pitchers in the American League over the last two years. But like I said to Joe, guess what that buys you? Nothing. I mean, you know what? It might have bought him an extra start or two. He stayed in the major leagues until June, despite being one of the worst starters in all of Major League Baseball. Don't make the comparison to Yusei Kikuchi last season, a guy who already reached free agency, the Blue Jays were financially committed to, had no options. Yeah, if Yusei Kikuchi was in year three of his Major League service time and had options, there's absolutely no question Blue Jays would have sent him down earlier than his eventual removal from the rotation last year. Alec Manoa was great. Out of the gates, Yankee Stadium, full season, second year, got even better. Opening day starter, year three, stunk, 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 stunk. And I I didn't expect that. It's unusual. He's not the first player in the history of baseball to all of a sudden have a rough year and require a demotion. He just truly is not. But that's what's so great about sports is that it's, It's not about who you know. 
It's not about whose son you are. It's not about where you came from. It's what you're doing. And not what you did. It's what you're doing right now. It is a true meritocracy. When you produce, you get rewarded. When you don't, you don't. But you can come back. That's the, that's the whole mysterious part to me about this Alec Manoa thing that I get it. He, he, he feels like he belongs at the major league level. He, he sees the dollars being sapped out of his career earnings because, boy, not getting a full year of service time this year, it means he's not going to get that extra year of arbitration, which literally means millions of dollars to him. I understand why financially Alec Manoa would absolutely prefer to be on the major league injured list. But the idea that the Blue Jays would just invent some injury for you, and I'm not necessarily saying that that was the ask, but like there's, and boy, would I love for Alec Manoa or somebody to, to be on the record and clarify this in specifics so that we, we could talk about the facts of the matter instead of just numerous reports. But I'm telling you, it, it sounds like a dude who rightly thought he was an established major leaguer, shocked to find out that he was not, thought that this team would give him the benefit of the doubt, which they may have, again, and brought him back, didn't perform to the level they would have hoped when they called him back, uh, after the the 30-day demotion where he went all the way down to the complex league. Hunjin Ryu looked pretty Hunjin Ryu-like. They figured they had a better shot with him in the rotation than Alec Manoa. They've been proven correct in the start since then. And honestly, if Alec Manoa had just accepted his demotion, gone down to the International League, pitched for the Buffalo Bisons, maybe figured something out there, and been the best starter in that rotation, look closer to his 2022-2021 uh, self, and the Blue Jays needed a starting pitcher, which even with, what, 18 games to go in the regular season, not out of the realm of possibility that the Blue Jays would suffer an injury to a member of the rotation, he would have been the first guy called up. Because while he wasn't great after being recalled the first time, he wasn't nearly as bad as the guy that had an ERA approaching seven when he was first sent down. But instead, you've taken your ball and gone home. And man, some of the, the rumblings I was hearing down at the ballpark yesterday that the relationship between Alec Manoa and the Toronto Blue Jays is not unsalvageable, but like this is going to be a very interesting offseason. To which I would say... What are your options if you're Alec Manoa? Again, th this is not directly reported. This is maybe not even explicitly said to me, but like say Alec Manoa said, forget this organization. They've screwed me so hard. I can't possibly put on a Blue Jays uniform ever again. Get me the hell out of here. Why on earth would the Blue Jays feel compelled to acquiesce to that request? is a player still with plenty of team control. He's at the lowest point in his value because, yeah, just like I said, the first two years mean nothing as far as whether you're in the major leagues in year three. The first two years mean nothing. I mean, not nothing, but 
but they sure don't mean as much to potential trade partners as the season they just watched in 2023. And he's a distressed asset. Who in their right mind is going to give you equitable trade return for Alec Manoa? It's just not happening. And at this point, I don't see a scenario in which the Blue Jays even pencil him in as a guy who could break camp as a starting pitcher in 2024. Feels like a guy, even if he's fully healthy, even if he feels like he's put his troubles behind him in the offseason, you got to see, it's like we're in Nate Pearson land again for Alec Manoa in 2024. That he has to go down to the Bisons and look like the Alec Manoa of the first two years that he spent in the major leagues before you even think about calling him up and having him be a part of your rotation next season. It's insane what's happened to this guy for the last six months or so. All right, when we come back, also insane. The Monday Nighter yesterday, for a bunch of different reasons, uh, Jets fans get like a moment of jubilation, and then today get to wallow in sadness again as it was confirmed that Aaron Rodgers has a torn Achilles. And Bills fans get to wonder whether there's a carryover for Josh Allen after his turnover-plagued 2022 continued with four of them yesterday in a division loss to the Jets. We'll talk to Nate Geary, Bill's pre- and post-game host on WGR 550 next. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, trying to force the ball. Um, <sighs> yeah, same shit. Same place, different day. All right, fan drive time. Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. All right, let's, let's make it clear. And that was Josh Allen, by the way. But first, let's make it clear that nobody in football should feel more sick than Jets fans today, despite the win, because of the Aaron Rodgers news. And today confirmed... Uh, that he has an Achilles tear, so he's out for the remainder of his season. Career might be over. But Bills fans have at least a small pit in their stomachs, maybe larger than small, after Josh Allen did follow up last season's turnover fest with four of them at the Meadowlands, including three picks. All right, so we're going to talk to Nate Geary, Bills pre- and post-game host on WGR 550. Uh, Nate, uh, I appreciate you doing this. Um, thanks for thanks for uh, taking the time. Um, I was going through your Twitter feed yesterday. Uh, I wasn't listening to your post game show. I wish I had been though. There, there was one. <laughs> there was one call that uh, somebody retweeted into or tweeted into your feed. You retweeted it that that I have to play for our, our listening audience because it is it is the epitome of post game open lines <laughs> in radio. Uh, here's Yvonne from Kenmore. I just want to iterate that uh, Josh Allen is a nuclear weapon. And uh, we should not be benching him. <laughs> However, if you lose to Zach Wilson twice in a calendar year, you need to be fired from your job. Not a coordinator, not a special teams coach, the head coach in the GM. I don't care if they're good clappers and they have cool sunglasses. They're both driver's ed teachers running an F1 team. Year after year, the clock <laughs> management's an issue. The play calling since Dable is a complete and utter joke. The defensive play calling is scared. They've never been able to defend the run. You invest a quarter of a billion dollars in the quarterback and refuse to put anyone in front of him who's a competent blocker, except for Deion Dawkins. You draft the next Kelsey. I don't even, if he had, I don't even know if he had a target, Nate. 
you've been given the keys to a hypercar and you're driving like a scared grandmother and you're filling the tank with 87 octane Camry fuel. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sitting in a, in a hotel room in Philadelphia and I'm inconsolable. I'm sorry that I'm losing it, but they should be coaching high school football, not Josh Allen and Von Miller and Stephon Diggs. It's pathetic. I know you're not going to go Doomer, and I appreciate that, and I, I respect you for not going Doomer, but I will absolutely do it for you. This is pathetic. All right, Nate. Um, <laughs> it is week one, um, and, I, and I'm sure some of that was performative. But, yeah, g- give me the temperature of Bill's Nation today. 87 octane fuel in a Camry. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, 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 it's good. Um, I don't know. The, the temperature check is that of, I, I think, just an extreme level of embarrassment, right? And, and I think it's tough because I think the, the closest thing that maybe I can equate this to for Toronto fans that may not be football fans is sort of like the Toronto Maple Leafs, right? It's this team that continues to have really high levels of regular season success. They have elite level talent, right? You've got Diggs, Von Miller, uh, you've got Jordan Poyer and Stefan Diggs. And um, it just seems like they're regular season champions. And then they get to the playoffs and they turn into a pumpkin. Um, and I know Toronto Maple Leafs fans can, can all sort of uh, can relate to, to something like that. So I think, you know, when you, when you have this game, the way that it played out, which is, you know, all of the hype, all of the offseason was around this New York Jets team and Aaron Rodgers and them being a Super Bowl contender. And then it goes down 75 seconds into the game um, not to come back. You know, you're thinking, OK, well, this game's over. The Bills should roll. Um, the Bills just can't turn the football over and they'll be fine. Um, and they do, you know, the very opposite of that. They turn the ball over. Josh Allen. Um, listen, this is, I think, a, a larger issue with Josh. This isn't something that we saw, you know, yesterday and this hasn't been popping up over time. Um, But I think there's a lot of questions around whether or not this offensive coaching staff led by Ken Dorsey can be, um, you know, the guy that not just builds a structure for Josh to trust and to play within, but also be able to reel him in because it's, it's obvious he needs someone in his ear. Um, So I think there's a lot of concerns um, around whether or not this offense is being coached the right way, whether or not there's people in the positions to guide Josh um, to be the quarterback that, you know, we saw in 22 in 2021 in that AFC divisional game against um, you know, the Kansas city chiefs, the famous 13 seconds game. So um, I think there's a lot of uh, embarrassment, but I, I also think that it's, this is a franchise that has gotten to the pinnacle, the peak um, just to fall short, you know, obviously four straight Super Bowl losses. And then um, since Sean McDermott's taken over, getting to the, to the AFC championship game, getting to the divisional game two straight years and losing, um, you know, I think it, it gets harder and harder to um, to, to maybe have the confidence this is going to be the group that, that gets them over the top. So um, I think it's a little, obviously, doom and gloom. I think it's a little bit of, uh, of embarrassment, secondhand embarrassment. Um, but feeling like you're watching your franchise quarterback regress a little bit, I think is maybe the, is maybe the biggest crack in the foundation. Yeah, we know how good he can be. Hey, and Brian Dayball may be available at, at some point this season if, if things continue <laughs> in, in New York the way they started uh, Sunday night against the Cowboys. But yeah, I mean, and I don't think Ken Dorsey wears sunglasses. He just wears normal glasses. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 he is the differentiating factor, right? Um, and, and I know the, the Bills had a, a pretty good regular season, but boy, just barely... Got got past Skylar Thompson uh, in a playoff game, and then got embarrassed mm. by the Bengals in in the divisional round last year. I, I don't. 
I mean, people can point to Josh Allen, and he's the guy that ultimately controls his own destiny as far as the turnovers. But, again, it, it does feel like Ken Dorsey is, is, is the, the differentiating factor between 2021 Josh Allen and, and 2022 and game one of, of 2023. Like, what's the level of pressure on Ken Dorsey right now? Yeah, it's the variable that changed, yeah. um, right? So I, I think it's an easy it's an easy thing to look at. I think with Josh, it's nine nine interceptions in his last five games played. Um, so this is a little bit deeper than just you know the the the, the coordinator um, you know running vertical routes and asking Josh to throw the football down the field time and time again. The two interceptions yesterday, the first two to me were. You know, and maybe the first one, who cares? They end up, you know, getting down at the five-yard line, but then Brees Hall, two plays later, breaks off an 80-yard run and gets them a score, right? They end up kicking a field goal and tying the game. Um, But it's just the second interception to me is egregious because you have all sorts of space to run the football, get the first down. Josh Allen finished the game with a 70% completion percentage. This in no way was an inefficient performance from Josh Allen. He made three really bad decisions that led to turnovers. And I think for me, this is where you need an offensive coach to say, you just got to continue taking what the defense gives them because that this is how the, how defenses defend the bills, right? They're going to run those two high safety shells and they're going to beg Josh Allen to take the underneath stuff because they know that if they keep giving it to Josh, that he eventually is going to run out of patience and try to stretch one down the field when he shouldn't. And that's where they believe that they can sort of beat the bills and get those turnovers. And yesterday's the perfect example of that. He does not have to chuck the ball down the field in those first interceptions. He can keep, playing to see another down. And I think you need, there's got to be a mature person in the room. And, and listen, the part of this is, and, and I wrote a piece at, on, on my website, WGR5.com, right? And talked about, you know, Mahomes has Reed and Joe Burrow has, you know, uh, has, has Taylor and Tua has McDaniel and Josh Allen has a defensive coach and Justin Herbert has a defensive coach. And some of these franchise quarterbacks around the league that have defensive coaches don't have the structure, don't have the built-in structure where it's scalable. Even if you lose an offensive coordinator, like, you know, say the Philadelphia Eagles did, right. They Mm -hmm. lose their offensive coordinator, but it doesn't matter because it's the, it's the head coach's scheme. It's the head coach's offense. He's an offensive coach. So I, I, eventually I think the broader point is going to be that can you win with a superstar quarterback who needs structure with a defensive minded head coach. And right now um, it's been a resounding no. Yeah. Yeah. When you have a driving school instructor trying to uh, drive a, an <laughs> F1 car, right? Uh, <laughs> not, not quite, but yeah. And, and John McDermott's had success, but yeah, with, with Brian Dable uh, operating the offense. So uh, we played that clip of, of Josh Allen after the game last night. And I, I don't know if you read into the body language stuff or if you care at all, but he and he owned it, which is a good, I guess, good in in some respect. But he he almost felt like he he might have gone a little too far with with being despondent after after that performance. Like like he knows it's some fatal flaw that that he has. I mean, do you care about that stuff, Nate, or, or am I making too big a deal out of out of you know an in the moment post game comment? You know, it's tough because I think there is a level of confidence here, right? And confidence is is a big part of this. And when your confidence wavers and, and it's not just confidence in yourself, it's confidence in the moving pieces around you. The bills, um, I think it was very obvious during that game that Josh didn't trust a lot of what his offensive line was doing. And it caused him to drop his eyes on plays where he had open receivers and sure he had some pressure. Um, but instead of hitting the top of his drop and, and throwing to an open guy, he was hitting the top of his drop and dropping his eyes and immediately running into sacks. And that's just something that we saw from 2018, Josh Allen, a rookie Josh Allen, not a guy that 
um, has been an MVP caliber candidate for the last three years. And that's part of the regression conversation, I guess, that um, I think has been brought up. And I, so I think for me, um, what it probably comes down to the most is belief that he can get the protection up front. Right now, he doesn't have that. And I think there's a domino effect in that confidence elsewhere. Um, but I also think that there's lulls with this offense where you see them, you know, early in the game have, I think, a good enough amount of success against that, that Jets defense, and the offense was flowing through Stephon Diggs. Mm. And then you start the second half, and they go three possessions, three out of four possessions end in turnovers. And in those three, uh, in those four possessions, Stephon Diggs has one target in the second half. And then they go down the field, right down the field, and they score to tie the game at the end of the half, or the end of the game, and Stephon Diggs has four catches, and puts in the offense is flowing through him. And that to me is the area where Stefan Diggs is probably rightfully very frustrated is he sees what the offense can be when the offense is flowing through him. And they go through these lulls during the game where they forget about him. Either they're not scheming him as the main primary target or Josh Allen's, you know, getting lazy or Josh Allen's not getting to that read. And so I think for me, when the offense runs through, through Stefan Diggs, it tends to be a far more efficient style offense. They just got to continue going to the well. And that opens other people up when you kind of continue going to the well like that. Josh Allen's really good. Okay. I, I don't think anybody's losing sight of that, but he's obviously very good. And, and he's the reason why this Bills team has any hope at all of, of being one of the top teams in the AFC, making a Super Bowl and winning one. Uh, they were the Super Bowl favorites last year because of Josh Allen. And they're, they were the third favorite preseason this year because of Josh Allen. There's some weird stuff, though, surrounding him. I mean, the turnovers obviously jump off the page. He's now 0-5 in overtime, including the playoffs, Nate. Like, is that is that just a weird one? Like, what? that's a that's a pretty large sample now to, to be in overtime five times and not a single time win. I, you know what? I should have broken down how many times the, the Bills have won the coin toss uh, over those five games in overtime. But, of course, the overtime rules allow you to, to get a possession as long as you, you hold uh, the other team to a field goal. Like, what, what do you make of the 0-5 and, and OT thing? It does feel a little fluky, but, you know, listen, I mean, the Bills didn't get a chance in that overtime against Kansas City in that divisional game, right? Right. Um, but it's hard to ignore 0-5. And, and, and the thing is, is you've seen Josh bring his top level, his A game in those big moments, the Monday night football games, the, mm. um, the divisional round in Kansas City and – um, but then you also see some of those moments become too big. You see his face get red. The composure kind of comes down. I, we, we call it sugar high Josh here in Buffalo uh, amongst Bills fans. Mm. And it's sort of that embrace of chaos um, where sometimes when, when there is chaos, you have to be able to look at your quarterback and feel a level of calm. That's, that's what the greats have. That's what Mahomes has. That's what Brady has. It's this, you know, when there's chaos, you look to the leader that is supposed to spread that calm, that composure. And right now when there's chaos, the bills are, and that team is looking towards Josh and they're seeing a guy who is, you know, sort of in the midst of the chaos that were the reason the chaos is there in the first place. So um, it's definitely a, a, a tough thing. Mm-hmm. I think for me looking at it and saying, you know, like this is one of the best three quarterbacks in football, but the two guys ahead of him, Joe Burrow and, um, and, and Patrick Mahomes are literally known for their composure, their coolness. And that's not what Josh is known for at this point in his career. All right. So, so the bills, uh, they've been around since 1960. There is no Super Bowl victories in there, but of course, yeah, the, the four straight Super Bowl appearances and the jets do have a, a, a Super Bowl victory, you know, back in, in 69, there's been some heartbreak along the way. 
and and yesterday four plays in the most recent example i mean is there a cursed off like who's more cursed the, the bills or the jets oh boy that's a loaded question um yeah i just I, it just is worst case scenario for the jets it's Listen, you know, they're division rival. I'm not a, by any stretch of the imagination a Jets apologist or Jets fan, but that is um, about as Jetsy or as Billsy as it could possibly be is having, um, you know, this guy that all offseason was the talk of the NFL. It's not that it's just bad for the Jets. It's, it's bad for the NFL Yeah. Um, because you wanted to see what Aaron Rodgers was going to do. Was he going to be take a step back towards who he was three years ago when he won the MVP in the league? Um yeah, I just it, it's hard to fathom what it must have been like watching that as a Jets fan four plays into the game um, and then wondering, okay, did he just sprain his ankle? Did he just do this? And then Jordan Schultz of Yahoo during the game reports there's fear that it's a Achilles tendon injury. And then after the game here, Robert Sala, uh, you know, say it's it is an Achilles injury. We don't believe it to be good. We think the tests are going to confirm our worst fear. And then this morning, you know, getting an Ian Rappaport tweet that it is a torn Achilles and his season's over. And listen, he's 39 years old. Um, you don't heal the same way. I don't heal the same way at 31 hmm. years old, much less 39 years old. I know he's going to uh, probably, uh, you know, do some experimental treatment, uh, some ayahuasca, whatever he's going to do. Um, but it, to me, it feels like a bittersweet end to you know Hall of Fame career. Um, I, I I don't. You know, I, I imagine he's not going to want to go out that way. Yeah. Um, but it, it, to me, I'm, I'm having a hard time imagining him getting back on the field next year um, after such a serious injury. Yeah, Nate, you know, I was thinking about it. I was putting, like, my fan hat on. And, you know, you, you spend enough time in this industry that it, it, some of that does leave you. But um, I was thinking about how normal fans would react to, to moments of, of humiliation for rival franchises and I'm not talking about injuries, but like say Aaron Rodgers had stunk yesterday and, and thrown five picks and, and how Bills fans would have been laughing at Jets fans. Like the way that went down and to have yeah. the, the Jets season ruined. I mean, they could make the playoffs, but obviously the, there was like Super Bowl expectations for that team. And to have it ruined uh, on the first offensive series in, in the first yeah. game of the season, like honestly – there, there's, there's, you can't even, you can't joke about it. These, these are, like, sports fans know, like, if, if you're a fan of an NFL team, that's, that's like, that gets you through the winter supporting your that's team. Right. And then, like, every Sunday, it's just, I mean, the, the expectation level is so different for Jets fans. Like, I, I was really thinking about Jets fans yesterday, and I, I'm normally so cynical about this stuff, but, like, man, that, that did put a pit in my stomach. Yeah, it, it, it's tough, and, uh, you know, I, I would never, uh, you know, I, I think about, you know, the Dolphins and I've got best friends that are Dolphins fans and what they went through last year with the injuries to Tua. And, um, you know, this is just, it's, it's so tough as a football fan being so excited, as excited as Jets fans were from April when the trade happened and, you know, till now or June when the trade happened until right now, just the lead up and hard knocks and everything, the build up for it to end so quickly and so bittersweetly. And then now having to turn your season over to Zach Wilson, who they did everything to it basically in their power to replace. Um, yeah. I mean, it's as bad as it could possibly be, if not worse. Yeah. Um, but it, it is the reality. Um, so yeah, again, understanding that this is a, a human being's leg and, and that stinks and, and all that, that, that that's entailed with Aaron Rodgers now missing the rest of the season and maybe his career being over at 39 and uh, being eventual hall of famer. And the jets have a pretty good, I mean, they obviously have a spectacular defense and, and they have the defending offensive rookie of the year who had one of the catches 
of of the decade yesterday uh, in the end zone yeah. as well. I mean, how how do you view the AFC East after? I mean, and the Dolphins had maybe the most spectacular offensive performance in Week One against the Chargers. How how does the Aaron Rodgers injury affect your your view of how this division is going to play out this season? Yeah, the Jets are going to probably finish in last place. It's probably going to be the last week that they will, you know, be on top of the division for the rest of the season. I, I think the Bills will be fine. Um, I, I think they've got some stuff to clean up. They they didn't. They looked a little sloppy in the preseason too. I think there's a little bit of a hangover from you know the the Cincinnati Bengals game. But I, I think the Bills will be right in the thick of things with the Dolphins. I think the Patriots will be a little bit better than maybe we initially thought they'd be. Um, but I, I, I'm I'm of the belief it's going to be between the 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 Dolphins and the Bills, and they'll have two matchups um, to really kind of set themselves apart in this. But you know, I look at the Dolphins and I say, yeah, you know, they put on a pretty a remarkable performance in Week One throwing the football. But that is a just an absolutely terrible defense in yeah. Los Angeles. It was last year. It's again this year. Um, the play calling was galaxy brain. Watching them run man coverage against. Um, you know, against Tyreek Hill time and time again to get beat over and over and over. Um, you know, that that's a team, that's an organization that should have parted ways with their defensive-minded head coach and found somebody offensive-minded uh, to run the program there with Justin Herbert. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I like the Dolphins and Bills as being the two teams that will be at the end of the season, kind of the two ones battling for the AFC East. Uh, Nate, great job hosting the post-game show yesterday in, in a moment where uh, Bills fans needed to be uh, consoled, uh, perhaps better days ahead for, for this Bills team. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, my friend. Anytime. All right, thanks, Nate. Nate Geary, Bills pre- and post-game host on WGR 550. That's it. Get, who doesn't love a little gentle ribbing, right? Blue Jays fans, hey, it, it, it's not been often throughout the history of this franchise that you've been able to give it to Yankees or Red Sox and maybe your friends that are fans of the Yankees or Red Sox. And that's, you're well within your rights to do so. That's part of being a sports fan because those teams have underperformed. It's fun to laugh at them. It would have been fun for Bills fans, for NFL fans outside of New York, even considering the cursed history of the Jets, which I'm going to kind of go through the more recent history in a second, it would have been well within your right, and I, I would have enjoyed watching it if Aaron Rodgers had just stunk, which was well within the realm of possibility. Wasn't exactly great last season at 38. He's 39 years old, joining his first new franchise in the history of his Hall of Fame career. That would have been fine. But to have it go down the way it did, where one of the cursed franchises in all of pro sports loses their hope so immediately, and and kudos to the Jets players for bouncing back and, and turning Josh Allen over four times and scoring the special teams touchdown. I mean, you go through some of the advanced stats in that number, and Aaron Schatz of uh, Football Outsiders was tweeting it out that, like, the you run the simulation of that game, and the Jets win, like, 25% of the time. Whatever, they, in fact, did win the football game. Kudos to them. They have no, sh- they have no chance, right? Maybe they can make the playoffs, but they have no chance of winning a Super Bowl, which was the goal and a legitimate one this season if they got even an average Aaron Rodgers season. And to have that snuffed out, so quickly to not even get to dream on that hope 
for even one game, not even one quarter, not even one offensive series as horrible. Nobody should be laughing at Jets fans right now. You, you should be trying to build them up because they, they, they got not even one of 18 weeks of uh, NFL watching where they could uh, enjoy themselves. All right. Um, Jets, underratedly, I feel like. I, I feel like we talk about the Browns as one of the most cursed franchises in all of pro sports. We talk about the Lions being one of the most cursed franchises in all of pro sports, maybe to a lesser extent, the Cleveland Guardians um, in baseball. You know, it, it's really, I don't feel like there is even really outside of Cleveland, a Major League Baseball franchise. Now the Red Sox and and Cubs have won. In the NBA, maybe it's the Knicks, but like, you don't have to go. I mean, are, are the Knicks like a cursed franchise? Maybe. But I, I feel like the Jets are, are quickly rising the ranks. Now, they have won a Super Bowl in, a, in franchise history. And they won a championship more recently than the Toronto Maple Leafs, who are obviously very high on the list of cursed franchises. And they made it to back-to-back AFC championship games in 09 and 10 with Mark Sanchez. We forget, like, Jets went into New England, beat Tom Brady and the Patriots to get to an AFC championship game. Um, But you just have to go back to recent history to look at some of the cursed moments for this franchise and yesterday being the most recent. But, like, go back to that 2020 season. And the Jets had it right in front of them. 0-13 going into week 14 and and the winless Jets beat the twelve, the eventual twelve win Los Angeles Rams, and then the eleven win Browns in back to back weeks to finish two and fourteen, one win ahead of the Jags, who end up with Trevor Lawrence, who I mean early returns, but man, he's made the playoffs look pretty damn good in the postseason, and the Jets end up uh, saddled with Zach Wilson, who at the time like people were talking about is maybe having a better career than Trevor Lawrence. But yeah, obviously in retrospect, that couldn't have been further from the truth. And then you draft offensive and defensive rookies of the year, get a future Hall of Famer to force his way to your team. Then he takes a pay cut to make it work and his career ends in four snaps into the season. Just just heartbreaking stuff for uh, Jets fans. But if you are one, you know that. All right, when we come back, Blue Jays have no wiggle room for error here when it comes to potentially securing a tiebreaker against the Texas Rangers. Need to win the final three games of the series to secure that. Starts tonight, Hunjin Ryu against Max Scherzer. We'll talk to Ben Nicholson-Smith of the At The Letters podcast. Next, Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Jay's coverage with an analytical twist. Jay's Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. Be sure to subscribe and download Jay's Talk on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, fan drive time. Sportsnet 590, the fan. I am Ben Ennis. Another rather important September baseball game for the Toronto Blue Jays, who still find themselves in the second American League wildcard spot despite the loss yesterday. The Rangers leapfrogged the Mariners, who have uh, sneakily 
been garbage recently. Losers of four straight yesterday, losing in extra innings to the Angels. Of course, the Blue Jays do not control the tiebreaker against the Mariners. They do, however, control the tiebreaker against the Astros. And the Astros, two games up on the Rangers. I wouldn't say that they are home and cooled out as well. They lost to the A's yesterday, but they're only a half game up on the Texas Rangers and could be a half game back after tonight's affair, Hunjin Ryu against Max Scherzer. Let's talk to our pal, Ben Nicholson-Smith of the At The Letters podcast. How's it going, Ben? Well, it's been uh, good catching up the last couple of days, and now we get to do it on the radio. Absolutely. I, I enjoyed creeping uh, behind you and, and Shai Davidi yesterday where you guys, while you guys were grinding hard, hard at work and, uh, and yeah, leaving um, before the conclusion of that game because I wasn't working it. Uh, I very much enjoyed beating the crowd. Uh, that was a disappointing game yesterday. I, I don't know if you have an answer to this. And we, we were kind of like marveling at, at at how sparse the crowd was, Ben. And then to get the news that it was actually the lowest attended baseball game of the season at Rogers Center for the Blue Jays, that was a bit of a head scratcher. I, I, I don't know. Is that just the, I guess it is the result of a September Monday game, but that's a bit strange, no? It's completely strange. It's so weird. I still haven't heard a satisfying answer for it. Like I could understand hey, you're not going to get your biggest crowd. It's not going to be a sellout. School's back. All right, sure. Like, that's all fine. But they play 81 home games. Like, I don't have it in front of me, but this has got to be home game, like, number 68 or something. Right. So we're talking about a pretty big sample. How is this one the smallest? I still, It still doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah, no, it doesn't to me either. I mean, I guess if I was going to look for an explanation, I would say that the early home games were better attended because people wanted to see the new – uh, newly renovated Rogers Center, but yeah, it, it was just, it was a small crowd for a very important game, and the only head-to-head game uh, the rest of the season against a team that you're directly battling uh, against for a playoff spot, unless you consider the Rays games, uh, which I don't, because I, I feel like the, the Rays are home and cooled out in the American League. But weird, very, very strange. We can get to maybe the minutia of the the 2023 Blue Jays in just a second, but I, I want to go back to your your great story yesterday. On, on Alec Manoa and and kind of the fallout, it, it's it's really it's all over the place now, Ben. Right? It's it's on ESPN. There's, there's lots of people having their uh, their take on on the Alec Manoa situation. People who are uh, unfamiliar, there's numerous reports. And Ben Wagner was on with uh, Blair and Barker yesterday talking about the fact that Manoa wasn't all that pleased uh, to be demoted for performance reasons. I mean, who would? But yeah, uh, that's part of the reason we didn't see him report to Buffalo. It's so hard to know where Alec Manoa and the Blue Jays go from here, but it, it feels really bad, Ben. Yeah, it's it's not the way anyone would have drawn it up. It is not a good situation. That is, everyone agrees on that. And yeah, I think you know he did just to just to get a little you know semantic here for a moment. Like he did report to Buffalo. Okay. Um, there was medical testing that took place in Toronto first. That happened um, before he reported to Buffalo. He did report to Buffalo. Then he left again um, to get more medical testing done um, in in the U.S. And um, you know, then that that process continues. So yeah, it's not good. I, I think that you know, for Manoa, he's 25 years old, so there's a long time ahead of him in his career. But this relationship with the Blue Jays is important, and you know, it really something has to shift right here. And it's not the Blue Jays' first priority right now, nor should it be. I mean, they've continued to engage with Manoa to see if there was a way where he could pitch. But 
you know, there's some physical things that he's dealing with. They're not capital I injuries, but he's dealing with some physical things. And so now we're at this point where, you know, clearly um, there's going to have to be some fence mending uh, within this relationship and potentially within the organization too, because of course his teammates are aware of what's happening and, and these guys are grinding and then grinding in a playoff race. So, you know, eventually uh, I, there are a number of questions here, but for now, I think safe to say that it has been, a very, very disappointing season from the perspective of absolutely everyone involved. Yeah, okay. And, and yeah, good. Keep me in line. Uh, yeah, I don't care if it's semantics. Make, make sure I don't make a mistake here in, in, in my, characteriz- uh, my characterizations of the relationship between Manoa and the Toronto Blue Jays. It seems bad. Uh, the, both parties um, obviously have different views on, on how the last couple of weeks and maybe the whole season has played out. Now, how unusual is it for a player who has not yet reached even arbitration well under his team controllable years and, and, and the organization to, to have this type of tete-a-tete? And does it ever result in a, in a parting of ways? Like, could you, I get, is the relationship to, to a breaking point um, between Manoa and the Toronto Blue Jays? Well, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, we'll see where it goes. Um, I, I think that there have been a lot of discussions, from what I understand, um, with a view toward getting things on track and with a view toward getting on the same page. And, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that those discussions haven't led in the direction that people would have hoped. It's not a, at a great spot right now. If things were great right now, then physically Alec Manoa would be doing better mentally and there would be a plan in place and everyone would agree. And that's just not the case right now. So, you know, I think... I wouldn't say it's I'd say it's too early to say whether it's at a breaking point. And part of that, too, is the Blue Jays have other fish to fry, so to speak, right yeah. now. And, you know, they're worried about their half game up on their playoff spot. So, they've, you know, Pete Walker, I don't think when he wakes up in the morning is thinking about Alec Manoa at this point. There was a point that he was right. We all, you know, remember the clip of Pete Walker and, and Alec Manoa and John Schneider in the office at the outset of the season and how much excitement there was. So there was a time pretty recently that Alec Manoa was front of mind. But my sense is, you know, these guys, meaning the coaching staff, Pete Walker, John Schneider, they've got enough to worry about as it is. So I think that they're not necessarily losing sleep over this. Alec Manoa continues to undergo, you know, these these tests. He's resting up. Um, The the feeling is that the rest will, um, you know, help him as he moves ahead here. But I don't know. So I'm not saying it's at a breaking point, but I also don't know what the resolution looks like. And it will be very important to find some healthy resolution to this as, as everyone moves ahead. I mean, for me, it's hard to imagine anything other than, hey, uh, Alec Manoa, you're under team control. W- would you like to continue your professional baseball career? It'll right. be in, in Toronto. And, and next year, guess what? It'll be in Buffalo until you prove otherwise. Like that, right. that's the scenario. I can't imagine any other scenario. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really reasonable take, Ben, because, you know, I, I've, that's the impression. Um, like you talked, I won't put this in the, in the words of Blue Jays people, but I'll say that if you talk to front office officials league-wide mm-hmm. about players who maybe are disappointed about something or maybe have dealt with some frustration or some nagging injuries, you know, end of the day, and you can dislike or like the system, but it was collectively bargained and agreed upon, end of the day, Alec Manoa is a Toronto Blue Jay for years after this. So uh, that's the status quo. And so what you say, what you lined out right there, um, there could well come a time that that's a conversation that happens between the Blue Jays and Manoa.
Yeah, honestly, I, I and I said it uh, earlier in the program, I don't see a scenario in which, like, even with the, the most outstanding spring training anyone's ever had, that he breaks camp with this team as a member of the rotation. That it's it's almost like where Nate Pearson, the way he started this season and his standing with this organization, that he had to prove it in, in AAA before he was called up. Like, it, am I out of line in, 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 in thinking that way uh, about, uh, you know, going forward to February and March of next year? Uh, I think I follow your train of thought and I don't think it's unreasonable. I think that, you know, at the same time, you know, they can have two injuries in the span of two weeks and things can change quickly. And so, you know, I I think you never know, especially with starting pitching. Um, So I wouldn't put it in absolutes, but I do think that again, and and this is not punitive, um, but if you look at this, just as far as the production, um, I think anyone looking at this situation would agree, whether you're with you know, a different team, whether you're with the Blue Jays, whether you're with the Players Association, you would look at this situation and you would say, Alec Manoa has not performed yeah. at a level that you would want for a starting pitcher on a contending team. So that is the objective truth of what's happened this year. Um, there's not, that's not really up for interpretation. Now, we also know that he was a Cy Young Award finalist less than a year ago so there's a lot of upside there we'll see what spring brings right we'll see you know how he's doing physically mentally it'll be good to hear from alec manila at some point we haven't heard from him in over a month so there's a lot of questions that we still haven't had answered yet yeah and it does feel like a lot of this information is coming from one side of the equation i i I would like to hear from alec manila do you think it's likely that we'll we'll get his his side of things because it's 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 hard not to go down the line of uh, again, the the thought process that it, it seems to indicate that this is guy, a guy that's just sour grapes that feels like he didn't deserve to get sand down. Uh, it, uh, although you just look at the baseball reference page and it's it's hard to argue otherwise. And and yeah, so I, I think that that's the perception at this moment. Um, again, I, I don't want to diminish the physical side of what's been going on here. Sure. He's definitely banged up physically, so that's an that's an aspect of it. Now, is he banged up to the point that he would have to miss six weeks? That's something that he's going to, you know, answer in time. Um, certainly, he was banged up physically. But the extent of that is probably another question. But yeah, I mean, it's um, it's as for whether we're going to hear from Alec Manoa, we will at some point. Mm. I'm not holding my breath. I've reached out, um, you know, myself personally to see if he wanted to talk, and haven't, um, you know, that that hasn't that hasn't happened. Um, so the door is open. If, if certainly, if you if you want to talk, I think a lot of people would be interested. But um, you know, at this point, that hasn't happened, and probably, you know, the time for that should probably be after the Blue Jays are done their season. At this point, yeah, you're right. That would be quite a bomb to be dropping today before like game two of uh, of this four game series with Blue Jays desperately need a win. All right, last one on this thing. Um, he seems like a beloved teammate. Like he seems to have a lot of supporters in that clubhouse. But th- that would be. I don't know. That would rub me the wrong way, especially if I was a guy that did grind in the minor leagues. And yeah, he played in the minor leagues very briefly. And he was at that weird alternate site thing in, in 2020. Um, and he performed super well in double A before his promotion in, in 2021. Is there any chance that like this sours some of the, the teammates? Are you getting any word that like, yeah, maybe it's actually rubbing some of the Blue Jays players the wrong way? Well, I, I do think that there's an element of that because, you know, we are talking about, uh, a, a team that's grinding right now. Um, you know, at the same time, these guys are have gone through it with Alec Manoa as recently as last year. So I don't think that's going to be lost on them either. And Alec Manoa was a huge part of the team that was really good a year ago. So 
that's not about to be forgotten. And I think in baseball, these things, like it's like, you know, in some ways it's like another workplace. Like if someone isn't at work, there are going to maybe be some questions and people are going to hope that the person's okay and, um, you know, wish that they had their contributions. And um, so I think that there's an element of that there. Uh, but at the same time, if he comes back and performs, like there will be forgiveness and everyone will forget. Um, you know, we'll see. I, I, I haven't, uh, I haven't talked to everyone in that clubhouse about it. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say, I know exactly what the pulse is, but, um, you know, they obviously are well aware of, of what's been going on and, um, you know, it, it would be something that anyone would notice. Yeah, no doubt. All right. Uh, moving on. Although I still want to talk about the offseason because, I, I don't know, I, I feel like it's fun. Um, so Matt Chapman, Kevin Kiermaier, Brandon Belt, Hunjin Ryu, Whit Merrifield, all pending free agents unless, I guess, the Whit Merrifield, like there's one of those weirdo mutual option things that never get picked up um, and is unlikely to, I think, in, in his case as well because I think it's like close to $20 million, uh, between he and the Blue Jays. Those guys are all pending free agents. Who's most likely to, to be a Blue Jay in 2024 amongst that group or do you think they're all waving goodbye oh wow i mean that's it i thought the manoa questions were tough yeah. now you're hitting with... <laughs> um I, I don't know i mean i could see Come scenarios I, I could honestly i could see scenarios where any of those guys are back right can't can't you like chapman um, one's harder unless it's like a hey i'm gonna recoup my value on like a, a like a, a cody bellinger type one-year deal and then re-enter yeah. the, the the market but it feels like i mean people the, the, the overall numbers are still not bad despite the fact that we've all seen the season and he's still i think among the american league leaders in doubles because he had 10 trillion in april and and since then has been one of the worst hitters in all of major league baseball i think don't you think somebody's just going to look at the overall body of work and look at the defense and say you know what uh, and give him a hundred plus million bucks and, and, and he'll take that and move on. Uh, you know, I think Chapman will get some really generous offers. There'll be definitely multi-year offers on the table from, you know, contending teams. I think that's pretty, pretty clear. Um, are they to his liking or, you know, to, to him and his agent, Scott Boris, like, are they, are they to the level that they say, yes, we want to take this? Like, I don't know. Um, maybe there are paths where the blue Jays offer something, you know, maybe on a shorter term. Um, that's total speculation on my part, but, um, you know, I think stranger things have happened. Um, same, you know, Whit Merrifield, could he come back on a, on a one year? Could Kiermaier come back? I think with anyone but Chapman, you're probably looking at one year, um, you mm-hmm. know, um, if, if you're the Jays, but at end of the day, with those four guys set to hit free agency, the Blue Jays need minimum two bats this off season. And that, could be a player who plays third base, second base, left field, or DH, um, in my opinion. So, you know, between those four positions, you need two legit major league bats, and that could include guys who are currently on the roster. Mm-hmm. Well, and, we, and you, me, and Chai were having a nice little conversation about David Schneider at the ballpark yesterday, and, you know, I'm very bullish on, on what I've seen. Obviously, how can you not? Uh, the, the numbers are ridiculous in the major leagues. But I, I also, you know, in, in part of my argument for David Schneider, I'm looking at the 1,600 minor league plate appearances where he hasn't hit for a high average, but he's had a high on base and he's, he's shown pop, especially considering, uh, considering his size. Like, where do you think his standing is in this organization as we get set to, to break camp? I mean, I, there's so much that has to play out. I, I understand that. But, like, let's just talk about the player and how he's viewed by the organization considering how well he's performed, albeit a, a, a small sample, and it's not going to be large, even if he plays every game for the rest of the season. 
But yeah, the, the process looks sound to me, Ben. It does. He's been he's been great, obviously. And I think, you know, if you look back to spring training to now, he's increased his stock and his standing within this organization so much already in the last six months. Like in, in Major League Spring Training, like he wasn't playing in a lot of spring games, right? He wasn't, he didn't, as far as I'm aware, he wasn't in Major League Camp. Yeah. Um, he was in Minor League Camp. So this is not someone who is considered to be on the cusp. But then you get to July, start talking about him a little bit, and you start talking to people around the Jays, and they say, we think we, he could hold his own right now in the Major Leagues. And that's like high praise, right? 28th round pick. This is a guy coming out of nowhere. He could hold his own in the majors. Then he comes up and actually does it and has this kind of, you know, performance that he has. And now there's even more optimism that, you know, maybe he could be something more than a bench player. Could he be something, some, something of an everyday option? So that is the trajectory that he's been on. I think to expect any more would be asking so much out of David Schneider. But even if he's able to hold at like, you know, is it a 770 OPS? Is it two wars? Is it 20 homers? Like, mm-hmm. that would be great production, right? You get that in free agency, you're happy. You get that, you know, out of a third or fourth round pick, you're happy. So a 28th rounder who can give you that, I mean, you are absolutely thrilled. And he's working hard. He's making good decisions. The little versatility there. So, you know, you really like what he offers. And I think that going into next year, he arrives in spring training, obviously in big league camp this time, and with a real chance to break and, and be a significant contributor on the team. All right, last one before I let you go. Uh, so the Angels doing their thing of leaking that they, they're open to trading Mike Trout, who has full no-trade protection. Um, he's also aged, but he's still Mike Trout when, when he's healthy. Um, and, uh, of course, it, it does feel like the Blue Jays are involved in rumors surrounding every big-name free agent, Jim Bowden had the Blue Jays as the 10th favorite to land Shohei Otani. Do you think that the Blue Jays are going to be involved in some of the biggest names that are bandied about this offseason? I don't know. I mean, normally they are. I actually wonder if this year they're not as much. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. Like, for example, Blake Snell. I don't think they're spending $160 million on Blake Snell. They already have basically a full rotation, right? Yeah. So... Um, Shohei Otani. I mean, you have, he's so good. You obviously have to do your diligence. Uh, my, me reading between the lines on, on some of the stuff that's out there about Shohei Otani, I'm hearing that as CAA, his representatives, want for there to be a lot of bidders, right? The Boston Red Sox, the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, let's get these guys involved. Let's get some bids. And then we'll right. take that back to the West Coast teams that he really wants to sign with. And boom, we're going to get our $500 million from the Padres or the Dodgers or the Mariners. And that's a reasonable strategy. Now, I don't think the Blue Jays want to be used in this. So, I, I you know, I would love to watch Shohei Otani play a lot. So it would be really cool. Um, I know it would create a whole, um, you know, firestorm around the Toronto media market. But I think I'd be down for that. I think it'd be really fun to watch Shohei Otani. But I just, it's not, I don't think that's likely. I think he's going to end up with one of those West Coast teams. Um, so you keep going down the list. I, I don't, I just, I, I don't necessarily see, and I don't have the whole free agent list in front of me. Mm-hmm. Bellinger, they'll check on. Bellinger would be a guy that they'll pursue. Um, you know, I, yeah. So here you, here's your first offseason rumor. Blue Jays have interest in Cody Bellinger. Yeah, because they already did, but it does feel like the Cubs are going to bring him back. Yeah, or there's so many teams that would want Cody Bellinger. Sure. So it's not like it's an automatic flip the switch and he's here. Um, but yeah, I think... Um, you know, they pursued him last offseason. He had a great year. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they had interest at the deadline. I'm sure they'll have interest again this winter. Um, so, you know, that's one where it would make sense. But some of the other ones, 
I don't know, and I definitely don't think Trout. You know, I just I don't think I don't think that's something that that ends up happening here. It would be cool though. Uh, but yeah, he yeah. would also have to okay any trade, and, yeah, and it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like the kind of move that Mark Shapiro makes. To be honest, like it's it's just pretty risky to take on a guy into his 30s with that kind of money attached to him, even if he is Mike Trout. Yeah, I don't even know what that deal looks like, honestly. Considering um, his lack of health recently, considering his age, considering the amount of money left, like is that a hey, you eat the whole thing and you don't have to give up much in return? I, I don't know what that looks like, but yeah, it's. Uh, a weirdo offseason uh, for a weirdo team in the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, ben, always a pleasure, pal. Thanks. You got it. See you, Talk man. You. There's uh, Ben Nicholson-Smith at the Letters Podcast, Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca, all over the Alec Manoa stuff, which he's right. Like, this is – it is kind of interesting, though, that some of the Alec Manoa stuff is coming out right now. Like I said, it, without direct knowledge, it does feel like it's all coming from one side of – this disagreement and that's the team side of it um and that we haven't heard necessarily from alec manoa but i don't know what the argument would be other than truly like this is here's something i could hear i'm injured they've ignored that i'm filing a grievance because that's i mean that that actually is a means to getting what you so desire is filing a grievance and arguing that there's been some medical malfeasance. I don't think anybody's doing that. feel like the Blue Jays have sent him through every medical test available to human beings. We haven't heard anything about him being directly injured. Is he banged up? Sure. Is this a season where he's not 100% physically? And I think that alludes to, like, yeah, conditioning, being a part of what's hampered Alec Manoa this season. No question about it. But like I talked to Joe Siddle about when it comes to Vladimir Guerrero Jr., yeah, he's banged up too. He's still posting. He's in the lineup every single day. He's doing his best. And that's not the reason for the offensive drop-off. Everybody's hurt. Even these starting pitchers, even when you start only every five days, it's a grind, man. Taking the ball 30 times, throwing it 100 times, throwing it a bunch more inside sessions in between starts, that is a lot. Ask any Blue Jays pitcher right now if they feel 100%. Doubt you're getting any yeses, okay? That's the nature of Major League Baseball. And I'm not saying that that's the argument Alec Manoa would be making right now. And honestly, until we hear from him, it it just sounds like a guy who has suffered failure for the first time in his entire career and doesn't know what to do with it and can't believe it to be true and wants to blame something other than his performance. And there's no recourse for him to do that. So what's going to happen is he's going to go to spring training next season. He's going to report to Buffalo. He's going to either perform with the Bisons or he's not. And he's going to continue his professional career. I don't care how much he potentially wants a divorce from the Blue Jays. Can't see that one happening. All right, when we come back, We're now counting down the days until the Summer Olympics where Canada will be taking place in the men's basketball tournament thanks to their bronze medal performance at the FIBA World Cup. We'll talk to Rowan Barrett, general manager of the Canadian men's basketball team and father of RJ. Next, the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. 
Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Alexander, who's got 12 assists in this game, Al, to go with the 31 points. Fan drive time, Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. And yeah, R.J. Barrett is going to get his Olympic jersey that he will be able to to frame and, and put next to his dad's from 2000 as Canada punches their ticket to Paris with a bronze medal performance their first ever medal performance at the FIBA World Cup of Basketball, beating the Americans in Manila. Let's talk to the general manager of the Canadian men's basketball team. Of course, the father of R.J. Barrett, Rowan Barrett, joins us on the line right now. Rowan, thanks for doing this. Congratulations. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me on. I know it's a great moment, great play-by-play. You know, I did obviously I wasn't watching it on TV, so I didn't hear any of that stuff. So uh, just really, really good. Great moment. Um, for us in the country, if you love hoops, uh, you had to love this, and um, you know we're gonna we're gonna enjoy this for the moment, and then you know obviously we're gonna have to get back to work here and start preparing for the Olympics. Yeah, no doubt. But yeah, you know, give yourself a second here to, to celebrate, man, because there's <laughs> a lot of hard work, and boy, it it was not easy at all. Like, tell me now, now that it's over, and and Canada won um, against Spain in a in a must win game after the loss to Brazil trailing by 12 going into that fourth quarter, you thought what? You know, I thought that we're going to win. You know, I think that, you know, Spain, we we made sure that we played them in the preparation games, right? Because the thought was this is the world number one. And if you want to win the tournament, you're going to have to go through them, right? You're going to have to go through them somewhere at some point. Um, Unbeknownst to us at the time, uh, that they would actually be on our side of the bracket to qualify mm-hmm. uh, when, when, we, when we selected that game. And so having played them in the lead-up, we, we, and we beat them. Um, and so we knew how to beat them. Uh, and I felt like we, we, we took back control of that game in the third quarter, um, and then we let it slip again. You know, some unforced errors on our, on our side, and let it go and let them get the lead again. And we just knew we had to kind of chip back again. And it really was fitting with our mantra for this summer, which was which was body blows, right? That 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 was our mantra: body blows. Like we're not coming in here as like some sort of conquering hero, right? Because we've got these NBA players. I mean, you have to kind of toe the line between total confidence in your ability to win, but also a humility and respect for your opponent, right? Mm-hmm. We're number 15 in the world, uh, and so there was a belief there, but. We, we didn't believe we were going to come in like Mike Tyson, right, and take you out in the first round. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, we figured we were going to have to keep hitting you to the body, hitting you to the body, and eventually your arms are going to go down. And once your arm goes down, we're going to go for the kill shot. And, you know, that's, that was our thoughts, right, body blows. And so you go into the fourth quarter, you're down 12. Here we go again, you know. Hit them to the body, grind them down, grind them down, grind them down. And then obviously that shot from RJ was the overhand right. 
you know? Yeah. To, to, to end that game. Yeah, I, I would advise you. It's a, an interesting thought that, yeah, you haven't seen the way these games were broadcasted and, and Dan Schulman doing double duty, calling these games early in the morning here and then calling baseball games at night. Like, are you going to take some some time to go back and, and rewatch those games start to finish? Because those are some of the, so, like the Shea step back um, it, to, to clinch yep. it against Spain. Like, that'll go down as one of the, the defining shots in in the recent history of this program maybe the one that propels it to its next uh stage of of development are you going to go back and watch some of those games absolutely right i mean it's a part of the uh it's a part of the work actually in the debrief is going back and making sure uh that you catch everything i I think it's important um so you know definitely be going back to watch it but uh very very happy you know with the guys and their ability to to execute Mm -hmm. you know i think i think that you know canadian grit was on display I think with these players, um, there was a resiliency, you know, amongst them. And, uh, you know, if you like, you know, it's one of the reasons you like team sports is because you see each guy depending on one another. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's, there's one guy in the trenches mucking it up. Like, do you think that Lou against Dort cares if he ever takes a shot? Yeah. Like he's coming out into the court and he wants to maul somebody. You know what I mean? Like that's what he wants to do. And that's his role defensively. Dylan Brooks, right? He has some games he's, you know, he scores 39 points. And he has other games where he scores three or four, right? He takes four shots, right? Mm-hmm. He, like, he's, again, another rough and tumble, right? I'm going to take him take him down by the knees. And, and then you've got, obviously, Shea, who's got a shoot and score. And you've got RJ, who's got a shooting and scoring role, you know? And you've got uh, Dwight Powell, who sets screens and rolls and mucks it up under the boards, you know? Um, you, you have all these different roles. And then you have guys coming off the bench and some guys that don't play a lot. And they're screaming, the assignment, you know, out to their their guy that plays the same, you know, position who knows the assignment. Tell me, hey, watch your left side, watch your left side, he's coming, right? And so everybody's got a role. You saw them all working together. Uh, it was awesome, awesome, awesome uh, to be Canadian watching that. You know, even though I am the general manager, uh, you know, I am a, a basketball fan as well. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed the Dylan Brooks 39-point performance in, in a, a bronze medal clinching win over the Americans. That was a little more dramatic than it needed to be as well. <laughs> the last second uh, three in regulation to send it to overtime, but the, the Canadians end up on top. And it's, uh, I wonder how you were feeling going into that game, Rowan, because it, it, there was a, a level of relief, right, after the Spain win that, that this team had done the thing they hadn't been able to do for, for five Olympic cycles and get back to the Olympics for the first time since you played with Steve Nash in 2000. But it would have been pretty disappointing after that to 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 leave the world cup without anything physically to 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 show for it what was your level of 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 anxiety going into that game and like the import of of beating the americans to to come away with the medal for the first time in this nation's history well first of all you know we came into the world cup with two goals right and the first one was to qualify right that we had to qualify we want to get into the olympic games and the other one um, was to, to hit the podium and to stand atop the podium, right? That was our, our the goal. So once we had one goal out the way, we were hungrily going towards the, the next goal. And, you know, truthfully, going into that game, you know, against the United States, like we believed that we had played better basketball, you know? Um, we were yeah. very confident, you know, in our ability um, to play against them. But, you know, it is the USA. They are a juggernaut, you know what I mean? And sometimes you think you got them, you think you got them, and then they hit you with an avalanche, you know what I mean? And, and you're down 15, 20 points, right? And it, it happens, you know, in a blink. And so uh, you, you, you always have to be concerned about their firepower. Um, but you know, we truly believe that if we executed our game plan, 
and executed our game plan, they were having difficulty defensively in that tournament, the USA. And we believe that if we stuck to our game plan and made their defense work, that they wouldn't be able to, 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 to stop us from scoring the ball. And that, and then eventually we could outlast them. And so uh, we were confident coming in and it's really exactly how it played out. And um, obviously it was a little bit closer than we needed it to be. And, um, and, uh, but, you know, again, in the fourth, in the, in the overtime, again, that, that grit, right. That, that resiliency um, and uh, just running our stuff and kind of, out, and obviously Shay, Shay went supernova on them. You know what I mean? In the, in the <laughs> overtime and, um, and, and here we go, right. We come out with the win. So uh, we, we were confident going in and we executed our game plan and we, uh, we were able to be successful. Of course, uh, like on paper, this is this, I, I think we all expected this to be one of the great rivalries in international basketball because of the geographic proximity, because of the rivalry in other sports, including hockey, the United States and, and Canada. It just hadn't got off, gotten off the ground because the program has, has run into some roadblocks over the last, you know, half decade, decade plus. Um, is this now like, is, was that maybe the first... In 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 a series of 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 really interesting rivalry games between the United States and Canada, like could that be one of the best rivalries in international basketball? Well, you know, time will tell. I think um, difficult to to pontificate on something like that, but I, I will say this: I think that it's taken us some time for our very best players to mature, right? Like we've gone into competitions at times with our starting lineup. Because you know, in order to you have to have enough talent to compete, but sometimes our starting lineup was average twenty-two years old, right? But mm-hmm. you know, you know, everybody in the media will run with, oh, we got all these NBA guys, we're going to do this, but they were young, you know. I mean, the USA puts young teams out there and they lose. You know, you're you're not winning in international basketball generally without players that you know have experience and have and have medal, right? And when you look at, you know, this team, this team averaged about twenty-seven years of age that we just had, right? Like Kelly and Dwight, they're over 30. And, you know, obviously Dylan Brooks is right in his prime now, right? At 27 years old, he's right in the midst of his prime. And, you know, Shea is, is, is getting close to his prime within a year or two. And obviously RJ is about five years away from his prime, you know? And so, you know, some still some youth and then coming off the bench again, some youth but experience as well. And so we felt like we had the right blend, the right mix, this time, and, and obviously our very best players, um, you know, especially with Shea, right, is really, really in that, in that, in that wheelhouse of experience. And so uh, those are the things that help you to push forward, for example, in that overtime, you know, and win, right? Because you have the experience, you've been there before, you've been on that kind of stage, you've honed your skill, and, and you're ready for that moment. And so those are some, we know those are some of the things that have affected us in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, because we had to really build a system of players. So many of the athletes you saw playing, they played for us in the U16, the U17, the U18. Some of them were identified 11 and 12 years old, right, by us. And so they had to take time to mature in the system. And now they're here, right? And, uh, and, and you're seeing the results. And I felt like this time we also had really, really good preparation right, as opposed to uh, the last qualifier going to Olympics um, where, you know, our country was on lockdown with COVID and we, we couldn't get exhibition games. We could, you know, just a, a lot of stuff going on. We had a really good preparation phase. We had a mature group of guys, um, the right coaching, the right system, and um, it was our time. 
it was our time, and our guys fought for it and, and took it. And look, if we can play against the best in the world, you know, each time we go to these these, these tournaments and um, and, uh, and 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 have Canada be counted, um, that's what we want, right? You know, in the preparation, we went after the world number one, right? To, to play, I mean, that's our mindset. If you want to stand on top of the podium, you got to know how to play with the big boys, and you got to be able to play with them, right? And and eventually beat them. And so we'll play whoever comes through the gate. You know, whoever whoever comes through the gate, man, we'll, we'll play. And if it's the U.S., uh, you know, let's go. Let's do it. Yeah, it might be LeBron James, it turns out. Like, I, I'm sure you've been following that story. He's going to recruit everybody. He's going to have one last kick of the can in, in Paris. What, what did you make of that news, that he's he's going he's, he's gonna to try and cre- recreate the 92 Dream Team, I suppose, in Paris? What, 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 have you been paying attention to that? Yeah, I mean, I've heard that. I mean, let's go is my thought process. <laughs> I think it's good marketing. I think it's... Uh, a great way to change the narrative. The reality is that the USA lost, right? Yeah. They lost. Yeah. They lost and they're not sitting on the podium. And, uh, you know, obviously for them, they never make excuses that country. They expect to win. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and every, anything less than, a, 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 you know, goals, a lot of times for them is a failure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're in the midst of trying to figure that out, just like every other country that maybe fell below their expectations, um, you know, including us, right? We didn't win the gold. Right. And so we have to go back and look and say, well, what happened? You know, why did we not win the whole thing? Germany is a team that we beat in uh, in the exhibition, you know, in the exhibition games. We beat that team. Mm-hmm. Right. That team won the whole thing. We very well could have won that thing. What happened? You know, what went wrong? We got to go back and look at it. And so the USA has got to do that. But, you know, it's, it's difficult. Right. It's difficult to accept. And so the narrative's changed now. And it's about who's coming next year and all that. And I've been at this long enough to know. You cannot speak in September about what's going to happen next July. (laughs) Like the players get hurt. All kinds of things happen. There's contractual issues with some. There's, you know, so many different issues. Somebody's getting married. Somebody's having a baby. There's a million things that happen. So, uh, you know, you can't speak in September for next July. No, you can't. I'm going to make you anyways. Uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, I know. We all know how much Jamal Murray wanted to be there, and totally understandable that that he he couldn't make it happen, considering the the shortened off season that he had and and the recent history of injury. Obviously, some other notable uh, absentees from from this team. Um, you had some of the the best Canadian players in the world, including I think the best, and I think everyone would agree in Shea Gilgis Alexander. But there's some other guys out there who who could. You know, be contributing members of a of an Olympic basketball team. I know you asked for the three year commitment. How open will you be to to bringing on some guys that 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 maybe want to re enter the fray here next summer? So I think I think the first thing, guys, is uh, you know we have to be cognizant of you know what you just shared, right? About like we have made a commitment to our athletes, promise to our athletes, and our and our athletes have made a commitment to us, right? And so, you know, I think our first thing is, you know, we're looking to honor commitments to our athletes. You know, I think that that's very, very important. You know, at the same time, uh, you know, we didn't win. And so we need to look at that, right? We're going to get into the debrief, right? We're going to go look at that and see kind of what happened and, and you know, what, what do we need to do to, to impact that? I think when it, when it, as it pertains to adding players uh, outside of our core group um, or, you know, any players to, to the team, you know, there is always a potential for subtraction by addition, mm. you know? And, and I think that that's something that we always have to be very, very careful about, you know? Uh, we, we put a very good group together. We have a team. 
that just went and performed. It was a team, right? Guys willing to accept roles. Um, everything worked together. Um, you know, you start adding a bunch of different players um, that can really impact, you know, your team and your camaraderie and all those things. So, um, you know, you have to be very, very careful about that. I think for us, we're going to uh, go through our debrief and then we're going to go through the season and we're going to watch the health of the players. We're going to see who comes out healthy, right? And and make sure the commitment's still strong from, from all of our guys. And then we'll make more decisions around that months and months and months from now, mm-hmm. right? I, I think I think the bottom line, though, is we want to win. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to win and we need to make sure that we have everything we need in the storehouse to make sure that we can do that. I mean, how does this success, though, impact things? Uh, you know, say there does come a point where you go back to, to recruiting or, or seeing who you open the doors a little bit more wide open. Like, how, how does having this this very recent success impact the, the perception of this team uh, around Canadian NBA players? Yeah, I, I'm thinking that at this point, um, if anybody has to recruit you <laughs> to want to play in the Olympics, yeah. you don't have the type of pulse yeah. that's necessary uh, to perform at the Olympics. Right. Like if you're Canadian and you see the Olympics and you see what we're building and you see the opportunity to go after something special and you don't want to be a part of it. Um, you know, it, it's very difficult for us, for me, as the general manager, to believe that you'll dive on the floor in the fourth quarter for that ball. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I don't think that you should require a lot of recruiting, um, even though <laughs> I am always recruiting. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm always recruiting. You're always recruiting, uh, but really in, in this kind of year, uh, my experience over 30 years is that uh, whether it was playing or, or whether it's leadership, is the, the, the Olympic year is always the easiest year to recruit. Um, so it's always the easiest year to recruit. Yeah, I'll bet. And, yeah, you know, going to Paris, not so bad either. Although apparently the, 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 the basketball games should be played in Lille. Um, an incredible FIBA World Cup of Basketball, wrote. I, I wish I knew where Canada now ranks in the FIBA World Rankings. They haven't updated them since February. Spain won USA 2. Do you have any idea what kind of a jump th- this team is going to make after this performance? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we'll be in the top 10 somewhere, right? And that, that'll be the first time in, you know, uh, more than 20 years, um, you know, when that when that happens. But we'll be somewhere in the top 10, I believe. I, I think you, you can expect to see the USA drop, I, I, I would think, um, a little bit as well. Um, as well as as well as Spain, so you know we'll see how that goes. But uh, uh, for me, it's you know the rankings are important for what maybe for seeding, you know, yeah. and, and where you go in the tournament. Um, but you know our mindset's always the same. It doesn't matter who we play. Like we were just in the group of death, quote unquote, yeah. right? The group of death that the prognosticators had Spain and France coming out of there, and both of the teams lost. You know, um, and neither one came out. Right of, of our of our group, so uh, you know I don't pay much attention to that. I figure whoever you have to play, if you want to win the whole thing, whether you play them in the first round or you play them in the second or you play them, you're gonna have to play them. You're gonna have to go through them to win. So uh, uh, you know, hopefully, obviously, if you can get an easier road, that's always nice. But uh, the rubber's gonna hit the road somewhere. You gotta be ready to play. And so uh, I'm not too worried about that. Um, I do think we'll be in the top ten somewhere. I think that's good. I think it's good to see the growth of the team. Um, and, and I, and I think that's important. I think the players can take some pride in that as well. Uh, but you know, ultimately, you know, all that's going to matter is when they throw that, that ball up in, in, in Paris, um, you know, and us being ready to play yeah. no matter who comes through the gate. 
<laughs> Pretty good hit list, though, at this World Cup of Basketball, knocking off number one Spain, number two USA, and number five France en route to a bronze medal at the FIBA World Cup of Basketball. Again, congrats, Rowan. Uh, great work, and can't wait to watch this team in Paris next summer. Hey, guys, thanks a lot, man. It's an exciting ride, and hopefully we can inspire Canadians as we, as we move forward. And, hey, just one more thing, if I can say it. Yeah. You know, w- w- like, we need everybody here, right? Like, I think that the other countries we're playing against, when we went to play Latvia, okay, in, in, in Minnesota, like, that team, <laughs> there were thousands of Latvian fans. <laughs> How did they get thousands there? Are they all millionaires? That's quite a, that's quite no, a trip. No, no. No, the government subsidized them to come to these games. Wow. The government subsidized them to come to the games was my, is my understanding, right? And so what I'm saying, we need everybody. Mm. Like these teams that we're playing against, it's not just the basketball. It's not just the players committing. It's the government supporting, which on the podium has been supporting us, right, which has been great. We'll need even more support. It's, it's the, the corporations, right? They're putting that money out to make sure – um, that 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 the the, the support is, is is there for these players, right? It's 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 the facilities, right? Opening up, making sure that these guys have everything that they need. Um, it's the apparel people. It's it's all of it, all together helping. And it's the country getting this stuff on on in on the radio, getting it on TV, you know, getting the awareness out. It's it's, it's everybody working together when we come to the World Cup or we come to an Olympics to play. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so my hope is that we can get that kind of support. Our guys are doing the job. They are committed. I don't want to hear anything more about commitments of our NBA players. Mm-hmm. Our players are committed, man. They're playing. They're there. The coaching's there. We're ready to go. We need everybody to help us if we're going to try to do something special next year at the Olympics. Yeah. Well, uh, no doubt. Um, the performance the, the Canadian men put on, in uh in manila there and uh before that in jakarta was was inspiring and, and people uh, expecting more of the same that this coming summer and hey you know what dylan brooks now apparently has fans in in the philippines they were chanting mvp <laughs> did you uh, ever imagine that <laughs> i didn't see that coming they were booing him yeah you know what I mean? at the beginning of the game the boo boo every time he touched the ball and he turned those boos into cheers i mean uh uh his spirit was infectious and you know it's why every every guy on our team to a man Right, we'll tell you they love to play with Dylan Brooks. You need a Dylan Brooks right on your team, mm-hmm. and um, and you know what? Like, I, I just love the fact that not only Dylan but all of our guys. They showed that there wasn't a stage there that was too large for them. Mm-hmm. There weren't lights that were too bright for them. Like when you're beating number one, number two, number five, that means you're ready for the fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought that Dylan exemplified that really really well, taking the fight to his opponent. Right, jawing at him, letting him know at the same time. Which, again, you know, some people might look at that and say it's arrogant, and says all these. I think it's gamesmanship. Yeah. Right. It's gamesmanship. When you're talking to your opponent, right, and you're winning by ten, you're winning by twelve, right, and he starts to believe the words that you're saying. Sometimes the basket it starts to look a little bit smaller, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and all of a sudden it's harder to score it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, if you can get into the opponent's mind while you're playing with all your tactics and everything else, that helps you. And so when you got Dylan, you know, scowling and, 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 and chanting after every basket and all that, the other team can feel that, you know? Absolutely. And so you, you'll love to have a guy like that on your team. Yep. And uh, I'll tell you, it was way more good than bad. I can't remember any bad with Dylan, all right, <laughs> in, our, in, our, in our tournament here. The, it was really, really good, and, and we're happy to have him. And the result was great. Rowan, again, congrats. Thanks for this. 
Okay, thanks, guys. This is Rowan Barrett, general manager of the Canadian men's basketball team. Can't wait to watch them suit up against the Americans in the Olympics. All right, coming up next, Blair and Barker getting you set for game two of four. Blue Jays and Rangers playoff spot on the line. I'll be back tomorrow. This has been the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.